To date, there is only one single class in all of D&D 5e that I have not tried to make a tank build out of. Do you know what it is? Any guesses? If you said Warlock, then you win. Today, we're going to fix that. Welcome to D4. I guess if you saw the thumbnail or the title for the video, you probably did guess that. But anyway, felt like a good intro. <laughs> so yes, here at D4, each week we take a deep dive into one, sometimes two, specific character builds for our favorite TTRPGs. We theorycraft about the character, we crunch numbers about them, not so that I can tell you the right way or the best way to play a particular character, but to explore one potential way to build a character with the hopes of creating something that is both really fun but also really powerful to play in-game. So if you enjoy creating characters for role-playing games almost as much as you enjoy playing the actual game itself, or if you're just looking for tips or ideas on a character that you're thinking about playing, then welcome home. Oh, welcome home. This is where you belong, and I am really glad that you're here. So thank you for being here. My name's Colby. Uh, yes, I do have merch available. If you didn't know that, uh, just check in the video description. I put a little link to where you can get some. There's hoodies, t-shirts, stuff like that, hats even. And that's a great way to support the channel. And another fantastic way to support the channel is by watching and liking and subscribing and commenting. Thank you for just being here. And also, if you really want to go the extra mile, you could consider joining as a member. Uh, there's a little button down there that says join for $2 a month. You get access to the library of write-ups that I create for each of these videos so that you don't have to go back and rewatch the video or take notes if you wanted to create the character yourself. Huge shout out and thank you to my channel members. You guys do so much for me and I really appreciate it. And for everybody else, you are awesome too. And I am really grateful for you as well. So thanks for being here. So yes, a warlock tank. It sounds fun, right? To be a spellcaster who draws on their power from an otherworldly patron to stand in the front lines and protect their allies by encouraging their enemies to attack themselves, building out their character in a way that they can absorb those blows. I love it. But there are quite a few hurdles to overcome if we want to make a warlock tank. First of all, if you wanted a taunt, that is a way to reliably, consistently encourage your enemies to attack you instead of your allies, like all good tanks should have, then you're going to have to multi-class. Okay, that's not something I'm afraid of, as you well know. Second, though, there are a lot of good defensive spells that most warlocks don't get much access to, so we're going to need to remedy that. Third, if you're going to be a good warlock, you want a high charisma, but if you want to be a tank, you're also going to need a high constitution for survivability and either a good dexterity or strength score if you want your weapon attacks that you're going to be making in order to taunt your enemies to land reliably. This means that we would be super mad, right? Multiple ability score dependent. Now, yes, of course, there is an easy solution to that problem, and it's simply to make a hexblade. I don't want to make a hexblade. And it's not only because I make a ton of hexblades and I'm kind of tired of them and I want to be a hipster, though admittedly that is part of the reason. But the bigger reason is that there's a different warlock subclass that I think potentially will make us a lot more durable than a hexblade would. And thus, 
a better tank. At least according to the spreadsheets when I crunch numbers for survivability, right? So this means that we're going to need to find a way to be a sad warlock, single ability score dependent, outside of going Hexblade, so that we can both do warlocky things effectively, or else why are we a warlock, and be a good tank. I think I've got a good solution, but it will require us to make a few sacrifices in other places. Still, I think those sacrifices are worth it. So let's learn about D&D episode number 132, the Warlock Tank, aka the Tank Lock. Huge thanks to my good friend Randall Hampton for the fantastic artwork that he created for this concept. I love what he does. He does it every week. I just send him words and he comes up with this amazing, beautiful art for it. If you would be interested in following Randall to check out the other stuff that he's done, or maybe even potentially see if you can commission him to create some art for you or even your whole party, I will, as always, put links in the video description on how to do so. Thanks, Randall. And before we jump into the build, let me read you guys the description for this character that the team over at Describe came up with for the character concept, as Describe is again the sponsor for the video this week. The adventurer's desperate battle against a screeching horde of undead is violently interrupted. The mist-filled air bursts, vomiting forth a pale-skinned elf, eyes blazing with celestial flame. Tortuous words of arcane power bleed from his mouth. As the chalice he holds aloft spills its contents, the water transmogrifying into phantasmal frost, completely coating his armored form. Casting aside the cup, he pulls from his back a gnarled staff, its length throbbing with druidic symbols, and roars out a challenge. Hearing this defiant shout, the whites peel away from their beleaguered victims to assail the newcomer, their rust-pitted helms shattering beneath his magically invested blows. So good. Oh, so good. Most of you know by now about Describe, how they do professional box text-like written descriptions of pretty much anything you could ever want a description for in your TTRPGs, with tens of thousands of searchable things already in their library, much of which is available for free. But then also, with a subscription, how you can request your own scenes for your own characters like I did for this one, or, you know, a setting in your campaign, or a spell, or a magic item, or a line of dialogue, or even a tavern song, to really help you immerse your players in your world. And Describe doesn't just do descriptions of people, places, things, but you probably know they also do VTT-compatible maps, soundscapes in their sound library, and so much more. There has been a lot of news out of Describe lately, and I wanted to fill you guys in on some of it. First off, they're having a giveaway for the month of April, meaning there's a few days left at the time of this video release anyway, to enter the contest, and you're going to want to enter. All you have to do is follow the link that I'll put in the video description for the contest. From there, you can simply follow them on various social media platforms to join or join their Discord, etc. The end of the month, they will choose one lucky winner to give a ton of loot to. First up, a Describe Celestial subscription, which includes everything they offer. All soundscapes, all maps, all descriptions, everything. Then also two player subscriptions, so a couple of your lucky friends can have access as well. And finally, the fantastic Vineyard RPG that's actually in Kickstarter right now and which Describe has helped contribute to. You'll get access to it in PDF, hardcover, and the compatible VTT of your choice. This TTRPG looks fantastic, by the way. It's all about fighting or joining an undead criminal organization. Awesome. Describe also has a new search engine, 
it's uh, built on Elasticsearch. It's faster, it delivers more relevant results than before, and can blend all types of described content, scenes, sound, and maps into one set of results. So great. Anyway, there's a ton to check out, as always, at Describe. So do yourself a favor and go check them out. Enter the contest and or go to describe.com slash d4. I'll also put that in the video description. Uh, if you use that link, they'll know I sent you, so I'd appreciate it. And as always, if you decide to purchase a subscription, make sure you use the code d4 at checkout to save 10%. Big thanks to everyone over at Describe. Really appreciate you guys. Let's jump into the build. All right, at level one, for our starting class, I actually wanna go fighter here. I am committed to not having more levels in any other class than I do in Warlock for this build, except at level one. So, why fighter? First off, constitution saving throw proficiency for better concentration checks. Also, shield and armor proficiency for better survivability. And yeah, I am gonna go cavalier with this character to get our soft taunt, right? It's not my favorite taunting option of the subclasses that provide it, right, to be honest, but the fighter chassis just works better than our other taunting options for a warlock, I think. The guardian armor artificer would be great for more spells, among other things, but the problem is their thunder gauntlet taunt attack wouldn't allow us to be single ability score dependent and attack with our charisma modifier. Ancestral Guardian Barbarian is nice, but raging and casting or concentrating on spells don't jive, and that feels a little off if we actually want to like act and feel like a warlock. So fighter it is. And I think if we're going to be going fighter eventually, we might as well start there at level one for the proficiencies we get, like I mentioned. So yes, when we first meet our hero, they are kind of your average city guard or mercenary type character, I'm thinking, but they happen to be a Shadar Kai, as that is what we're taking for our race. Now, I'm not sure what this particular Shadar Kai is doing outside of the Shadowfell, that's for you to decide, but I think for me, our hero perhaps became uncomfortable with their people's affiliation with the Raven Queen. They are maybe a little less interested in death and a little more interested in life for some reason. Maybe they had a vision from an otherworldly being that showed them a better way. Maybe there was some tragedy in their backstory that caused them to become averse to the goddess of death and they fled, seeking instead to commit themselves to life. Football is life. At this point, they are just learning how to protect those they hold dear and give life to those they want to save, but they're very much still a novice at all of this. Regardless though, they do still have the Blessing of the Raven Queen ability that all Shadarkai inherent among other great elven abilities. Blessing of the Raven Queen is really the main reason we wanted to go Shadarkai in the first place. It's a fantastic ability for both mobility and tanking. And it's kind of hard for me to imagine building a non-barbarian tank anyway character in the future that goes any other race. In case you didn't know, Shadarkai were updated along with a lot of other races in the Monsters of the the multiverse book that came out a few months ago. The Blessing of the Raven Queen ability is the biggest difference between the new version of the race and tells us that proficiency bonus times per day, we can teleport 30 feet as a bonus action and when we do so we become resistant to all damage for an entire round while we appear ghostly and translucent. Ooh. This is so cool and so very useful and 
powerful for a character especially who is building both for survivability and wants to interpose themselves between their enemies and their allies as often as possible. I love it. As for our ability scores here, I assume that we go the point by method as always and recommend taking a 15 charisma and taking a plus two there, a 15 constitution and taking our plus one there, and then a 14 dexterity. We need the dexterity both to qualify for multi-classing with fighter and for the benefit it will give us to our saving throws and armor class, since we're going to be wearing medium armor. Speaking of which, for our starting equipment, I want to go the gold buy route as usual and grab some scale mail, a shield, a rapier, or a short sword if you can't afford the rapier. We're not going to be using it for very long, but we will for a few levels. And then a quarter staff or a club, which we're not going to be using at the moment, so feel free to hold off there if you want, but they're not very expensive. So yes, since we started as a fighter, we could use heavy armor here, but since we dumped strength, that means we would have a 10-foot move speed penalty, and I don't like that. Admittedly, the Blessing of the Raven Queen ability would help counter that move penalty somewhat, since we could teleport 30 feet regardless, but we do have limited uses of that ability, and until we can afford plate mail, medium armor with a plus two dexterity modifier gives us the same armor class as heavy armor anyway. Feel free to switch to plate later when you can afford it, especially, of course, if you can find some mithril plate armor, which doesn't impose that move speed penalty if you don't meet the strength requirement, right? As for our weapons, yes, at the moment, we're a pretty lousy damage dealer with a finesse weapon and only a plus two dexterity modifier. As a tank character, we'll never be all that great at damage anyway, but these first couple of levels are particularly painful. Just hold on and survive until level three, level four is even better. As a fighter one though, of course we do get second wind. It lets us heal ourselves once per short rest with a bonus action equal to a d10 plus our fighter level, particularly nice for those of us so interested in our survivability. And then we get a fighting style. I think if I were playing this character in game, I would probably go with interception here to let me use my reaction to reduce damage dealt to a nearby ally. Seems like the kind of thing that a tank would be doing, right? But since I'm beholden to the spreadsheet and crunching numbers for survivability, I'm gonna take defense here for this build since it gives us a plus one to our armor class and just makes our numbers look better. But at level two, we begin our journey into warlockdom. Most of the time, if I'm building, say, a wizard tank like this, or maybe a monk tank like this, I'll go three levels of the class that gives us our taunt first before diving into the main class since yeah it's kind of hard to consider yourself a tank if you're not doing anything to discourage your enemies from attacking your allies and attacking you instead right that's kind of the definition of what a tank is but in this instance i feel like we need to get to warlock 3 as soon as possible even if it means delaying that soft taunt that we're after i think it will make sense as we go so yes, at this point, that otherworldly being that led us away from the Shadowfell and toward a better path has made themselves more fully known to us and deemed us worthy to imbue us with a portion of their power if we will commit to helping them in their own cause, or perhaps if we just commit to protecting others in their behalf. Because yes, at Warlock 1, we get our subclass, our otherworldly patron, and in case it wasn't obvious, I want to go with the Celestial Patron. Like I said at the beginning, 
Hexblade could work really well here. In fact, it would be an easier path to let us just depend solely on our charisma. It would let us do more damage and potentially land our soft taunt on more enemies sooner, but we're not really interested in easy here. And the Celestial Warlock both feels more like the path a protector tank character would go thematically to me, and also, yes, has much better survivability and support capabilities, which is sort of what we're here for, right? Because as a Celestial Warlock, we get the pretty fantastic Healing Light feature here at Warlock 1. This tells us that we get a pool of D6s equal to one plus our Warlock level per day that we can use as a bonus action to heal any creature, including ourselves, that we can see within 60 feet. We can only spend a number of these dice at one time equal to our Charisma modifier, so no more than three dice at once for us currently, but we only have two dice right now anyway, so I don't see this as a huge restriction even later on. Admittedly, you know, D6s, it's not a ton of healing, but if we're truly doing our job and convincing the enemy to attack us most of the time, it will be a nice way to extend our own life by a little bit. And of course, it will be a fantastic way to bounce an ally back to consciousness if they go down from range with a bonus action, a sort of like healing word. And that's a great little feature to have. As for the spells that we get at Warlock level one, Celestial Warlocks get the Light and Sacred Flame cantrips for free, not bad. And then I'd probably be sure to grab Eldritch Blast to give us a decent ranged attack option when we need it, as well as Booming Blade, which we will be using on our weapon attacks for quite some time. Booming Blade is great in that when you cast the spell, you also make a weapon attack, and if you hit, you do extra damage, after character level 5 anyway, and make it so that if the enemy moves before your next turn, they take some additional damage as well. That is especially useful for a character who's relying on the Cavalier's soft taunt, which we'll discuss later, but yes, encouraging your enemies to stay close to you instead of leave to go after your weaker allies is a really good thing. For first level spells, I'd probably take Cure Wounds, which Celestial Warlocks get access to, to use in a pinch when you're out of your healing light dice. And then Armor of Agathus is gonna be really important for us. It's a fantastic spell for those interested in survivability and who plan on getting targeted a lot like us. It gives us five temporary hit points and returns five cold damage to an enemy who hits us with a melee attack so long as we have at least one of those temporary hit points on us still. It does take an action to cast, which is a bummer, but it lasts for an hour without requiring concentration. So yes, I'm going to assume that we've got this spell on us when a fight breaks out. Armor of Agathus also scales quite nicely, increasing by five more temporary hit points and five more damage returned for each level we upcast it. This will be a decent source of both survivability and damage for us, and I love it. At level three, we would be a Warlock two, and that means we get Eldritch Invocations. And to be honest, there aren't a lot of invocations for this build that feel like must-haves to me, which in a way is kind of nice because it potentially frees us up to take things that we want that feel useful or fun or sure powerful in ways outside of our main focus of survivability. So I think at this level, I'd probably go with Agonizing Blast and Repelling Blast 
since that would let our Eldritch Blast both do more damage than our Short Sword or Rapier attack. It's a d10 for Eldritch Blast, right? And then now would add our Charisma modifier to damage too, which is a lot better than our Dexterity modifier, not to mention we have a better plus to hit. And with Repelling Blast, it would let us push an enemy 10 feet away when we hit them with Eldritch Blast. This is important because we don't have a way to ignore disadvantage on making ranged attacks when an enemy is within five feet of us, right? So we're kind of still in a place where we would want to keep the enemies away from us if we were going to be using Eldritch Blast for our damage. And this tactic would also let us help keep our allies safe too, potentially letting them move further away from an enemy who was previously all up in their business without taking an opportunity attack. Keep in mind that we can swap out one of our invocations every time we take a warlock level, and yeah, I think we'd probably be taking advantage of that feature on this build, because at level 4, we'd be a Warlock 3, and that means we get our packed boon from our patron, and this is where things kind of start to come together for our character, because we are going to take not Pact of the Blade, which is what we would have done if we would have gone Hexblade, but Pact of the Tome, one of my more infrequently used pacts, but it's super important to this build because Pact of the Tome lets us learn three cantrips from any class's spell list, write them in our brand new Book of Shadows, and then cast those cantrips as if they were warlock spells, so long as the book is on our person. And in case you hadn't guessed yet, that means we can take, among other things, the Shillelagh cantrip which is typically only available to druids. Shillelagh is great in that it lets us use our bonus action to imbue a club or a quarterstaff, so time to pull that out and ditch our sword, right? And then let us use our spellcasting modifier, which yes, for us means our charisma, for our bonuses to hit and damage with that club or quarterstaff, which also, by the way, now becomes a d8 weapon. And so, we can finally claim our sad status as a melee warlock without being a hexblade, and that makes me so happy. The big downside to Shillelagh, of course, is that, as I've discussed in a few other videos, though it doesn't require concentration and only takes a bonus action to cast, it only lasts for one minute. So that means that unless your DM allows you to just be always casting a cantrip every minute on the minute as I walk around doing whatever, like admittedly a lot of tables allow, and actually Pathfinder 2E just officially puts in the rules that this is something you can do while you're exploring, which I really appreciate. If you can't do that, then you're going to need to spend your first bonus action on your turn when combat breaks out, casting Shillelagh, unless you can see combat coming, right? It's not a huge deal, but it is a bit annoying. As for the other two cantrips that you take here, I would say go ahead and PYF, pick your favorite, but I'd probably at least make sure to get Guidance since it's a pretty powerful utility spell, which is not typically available to warlocks. And then yes, I would swap out an invocation here. I think if it were me, I'd probably swap out Agonizing Blast since I don't think I'd be using Eldritch Blast all that often anymore. And if I did, it would probably be when I really wanted to push a target for some reason rather than do a little more consistent ranged damage. The invocation that I would pick up instead would be, I think, Book of Ancient Secrets, which is only available to Pact of the Tome Warlocks. This invocation is great in that, first of all, it lets us cast ritual spells as rituals, which somewhat strangely, in my opinion, warlocks can't otherwise do. It seems like to me out of all classes, in D&D, the ones making 
pacts with otherworldly beings and with more capabilities to summon beings from other planes and things that warlocks would be the first to cast spells as rituals. Anyway, in addition, this invocation lets us pick two first level spells that have the ritual tag again from any class's spell list and write them in our Book of Shadows and then let us cast those spells as rituals. I would say we should for sure take Find Familiar so we can now enjoy like a little owl friend to scout around for us and importantly give us advantage on one attack per round and we're only making one at the moment right with Booming Blade so that's fine. Landing our attacks each turn will be super important not so much for our damage but because in a couple of levels it's the way we will be putting our soft taunt on our enemy to discourage them from attacking our allies and attacking us instead right. As for the other ritual spell that we can take here go ahead and pick your favorite probably focusing i think on a handy utility spell like comprehend languages or detect magic or identify etc also with this eldritch invocation if you find a ritual spell later in your adventures say in a scroll via a spell book etc you can copy it into your book of shadows and cast it as a ritual now too even if it's not a first level spell and that's potentially really nice, letting you pick up some super useful things like Tiny Hut, Phantom Steed, Water Walking or Breathing, Telepathic Bond, etc. So yeah, keep an eye out for good ritual scrolls, or see if you can pay somebody to make you one. As for the second level spells that we learn at Warlock 3, Celestial Warlocks get access to Lesser Restoration, so I'd probably grab that in order to cure allies of some pretty bad conditions, blinded, deafened, paralyzed, or poisoned. But beyond that, again, just PYF. Misty Step, Hold Person, Suggestion, Spider Climb, Invisibility, and more are all great options, but none that I'd necessarily be using to increase our survivability in combat, so just Pick whatever you like most and makes you feel like a cool warlock. But at level five, now that we've got Shillelagh, we've got to go back to fighter so that we can grab that soft taunt and be a better tank. That means we'd be a fighter two here and yeah, we'd get action surge. So we can, once per short rest, take two actions on our turn instead of one. This is going to be really nice to make an extra like booming blade attack on a second target once in a while, or to get armor of Agathus going at the beginning of combat if you didn't have it up when a fight broke out, right? Or if it had expired maybe in the middle of combat and you still wanna make a booming blade attack on your turn and reapply those temporary hit points, or maybe let you throw out hold person on one enemy and then booming blade a second. Two actions are always better than one. At level six, we would be a fighter three. And yes, that means we finally get our martial archetype, our fighter subclass, and as I've said, we are going cavalier. Seeing as how cavaliers are both kind of thought of as like chivalrous nobles, not that you'd have to play yours in that way, but I don't know why you couldn't make your Shadar Kai from like a noble elven Shadowfell house. But also, cavaliers are known as experts in the saddle, so maybe we really should prioritize finding that Phantom Steed scroll, right? Because yes, one of the features that you get as a cavalier is born to the saddle, which basically just gives some like quality of life improvements for those wanting to be mounted. You don't fall off as easily, you might land on your feet if you do fall off, and mounting or dismounting only costs five feet instead of half your move speed. But the most important feature we get as a cavalier, of course, is unwavering mark, which tells us that when we hit a creature with a melee weapon attack, we can mark them. And when marked, the enemy has disadvantage on attacks against anyone but us, and thus, we have our soft taunt.
finally. Also, with Unwavering Mark, if a marked enemy does damage to anyone other than you, despite you encouraging them to do otherwise, once per day, it's based on our strength modifier, unfortunately, but does have a minimum of one use per day at least, we can use our bonus action on our next turn to attack the enemy with advantage and do extra damage equal to half our fighter level. It's not amazing, but just one more way to encourage enemies from attacking our allies and punishing them for doing otherwise. Now, the nice thing about Unwavering Mark is that we can mark as many enemies as we want with it so long as we have the ability to hit multiple enemies with a melee attack, right? It only lasts until our next turn. We don't currently have ability to do that outside of Action Surge, but it is a benefit over, say, the Ancestral Guardian Barbarian who only gets to put their taunt on a single enemy at a time. The big downside to our mark is that the enemy has to stay within five feet of you for it to work, meaning that, yes, we want to do everything in our power to keep them where we are. Hence, Booming Blade. Not only does it do a little extra damage, but now if they try to run from us, they will potentially take an opportunity attack from us and an extra 2d8 of thunder damage at this level. So I would think that most of the time that enemy is just going to be staying put rather than chasing after our squishier friends. And if they don't, they're going to take a lot of punishment for it. All right. At level 6, it is time for our first damage report. For those new to the channel, this is how we calculate damage numbers against our tank builds, and for everybody else, feel free to skip ahead about 90 seconds or so. We pit them against three hypothetical combat encounters of medium difficulty for a party of four at this level. One is like a boss fight against a dragon, one is a typical fight against four or five normalish enemies that you might find at this level, and the third is just a level appropriate fireball. We figure out how much damage our tank would take if they had access to all of their resources. I'm talking a spell slot for Armor of Agathis, their healing light dice, a use of their Blessing of the Raven Queen, etc. That number is our DTPR, damage taken per round. We then determine how long our tank would survive if they took that exact amount of damage every single round, which gives us our rounds to die or RTD. It's flawed you might not have any spell slots left for every single fight, or only two healing light dice, right? But as I do with all of my builds, I like to calculate numbers based on best case scenario in the interest of exploring what's possible, mechanically speaking, for each character. And also, of course, every enemy on the battlefield is very unlikely to spend their entire turn attacking you and only you round after round after round, right? That'd be awesome if they did, but... I think it pretty unlikely. The model is imperfect but serviceable so long as we apply it to every single tank character that we build, which we've done. So right now, with a shield and a plus one two armor class from the defense fighting style, a 14 dexterity, and assuming we've managed to get half plate armor, our armor class is a very solid 20. With a 16 constitution, 10 temporary hit points from Armor of Agathis, upcast at a second level, right? 14 hit points of potential self-healing from our healing light dice, and another 8.5 on average healing from second wind, we are sitting at 87.5 hit points on average, potentially. Also, we will potentially have resistance to all damage, three times a day at least, if we've got our Blessing of the Raven Queen active, and yes, I'm assuming best case scenario, so assuming we have spell slots, our healing light dice, that we've used our teleport to gain resistance, etc, etc. Again, and as always, we're talking best case scenario for damage taken in a round, then calculating how long we'd survive at that level of damage. 
It's not really an attempt to figure out how long it would take this character to actually die in this scenario, because we're working in a vacuum, right? We're working in a lab, not in a real imaginary battlefield. Sorry, it probably feels like I'm beating a dead horse, but you would be surprised at how many comments I get with each tank build. <laughs> Complaining about how unrealistic my number crunching is. Right, so at this level, our boss fight was against a young white dragon. And if they did nothing but just attack us with their bite and their claws, we would take on average nine damage in a round. And at that level, we would survive for 10 rounds. The typical fight was against four berserkers and the DTPR there was six with the rounds to die being 14. And against a 14 DC level three fireball, we would take 11 damage per round on average, and at that rate of damage, we'd survive for nine rounds. Compared to other tank builds that I've done to date at this level, and check in the video description to see those comparisons, the graphs, the spreadsheets, this is kind of top of tier two territory for attacks against our AC, and better than most builds for Fireball. Not bad at all. Let's see where we can go from here. At level seven, we're gonna be a Warlock 4, and that means we get an ability score increase or feat. And I feel the same way about this as I do about pretty much all of my tank builds. If I were playing this character in game, I think I might be looking to bump my charisma to improve my attacks and my spells, among other things. But since I want our numbers to look as good as possible on the spreadsheet, I'm instead going to take tough here to give us two more hit points per character level. Exploring the realm of what's possible. So you feel free to go a different route if you feel like your survivability is in a good place and you want to instead focus on being a better, well, warlock and or do more damage, etc. I should probably mention here as well, some of you may notice that I'm not taking the Warcaster feat because I hate it. It wouldn't be a bad option to consider being able to cast Booming Blade as an opportunity attack, which we could do with Warcaster, makes it that much more painful if an enemy tries to leave your side. Having advantage on concentration checks would be nice, which also comes from Warcaster. And yes, of course, being able to cast spells that have somatic components with our hands full would be another benefit. You might also notice, however, that I'm not actually planning currently on casting a lot of spells in combat that would require a free hand, though. I mean, you could always sheath your club and then cast Hold Person if you wanted, drawing it next round to make attacks, right? With Booming Blade, the somatic components are the attack you make with your weapon, so we should be good there. Still, Warcaster is worth considering, especially because at level eight, I wanna take an oh-so-brief detour. You see, the big drawback with Warlock is that, again, outside of Hexblade, so OP, Warlocks don't get access to the shield spell. And shield is a really powerful defensive buff that we would love to have access to, giving us a plus five to our AC for an entire round if we have the reaction to cast it and the spell slot to spend, right? There are a few ways we could get access to shield, but I think the best is to take a single level dip in another class. In our case, that's going to be Sorcerer. And Sorcerer can potentially get us some other really nice benefits to boot. So yes, we'd be a Sorcerer one, and as such, we get our Sorceress origin, our Sorcerer subclass, and I think it makes perfect sense thematically to go Divine Soul. This could simply be explained as our celestial patron granting us an increased portion of their power if we didn't want to complicate our backstory too much, but Sure, you could always make it a part of your story that you do have divine blood 
in your ancestry, right? Perhaps that explains why your celestial patron reached out to you in the first place. Maybe you're related. As a divine soul, we get favored by the gods, which is probably my favorite level one sorcerer subclass feature. It tells us that if we fail an attack or a saving throw, once per short rest, we can add 2d4 to it, potentially changing the outcome. Definitely save this for an actual important saving throw and don't go wasting it on a fireball spell. We also get the divine magic feature here, which basically gives us access to the cleric spell list as well as the sorcerer spell list. And that means we have access to some really great defensive and protector based spells now. What you should undoubtedly do is grab Bless and use that for your concentration most of the time from now on unless someone else in your party is already doing so. What I'm going to do is grab Shield of Faith and use it to selfishly increase my armor class by two. You cast Shield of Faith as a bonus action and it lasts 10 minutes, so that's nice. And to be fair, I think it's okay to be selfish with our concentration when pretty much everything else that we're doing as a character in the game is trying to protect our allies by getting enemies to attack us, right? But as for the other spells that we should take here at Sorcerer 1, I'd say just make sure you grab, yes, the shield spell and then absorb elements as well since that lets us use our reaction to have resistance to elemental damage until our next turn. Meaning that we could use this against that fireball if we needed in case it comes up and we hadn't used Blessing of the Raven Queen on our turn, right? One note, yes, rules as written, you'd probably need Warcaster here to have your hands full and use your reaction to cast shield or even absorb elements. At my table, we can drop a weapon as part of the reaction to cast a spell like this, but I know it doesn't work that way for everyone, and if it doesn't for you, then yes, you probably want to have grabbed Warcaster at Warlock 4 or at Fighter 4, which we would be now at character level 9. We really want that ability score increase or feat at this level, which I, again, would probably be using to cap my charisma here, I think, but for the purposes of this build, I'm going to say we're bumping our constitution, since that's the thing that will do the most for our survivability, putting it at a very friendly 18. For our level 9 damage report, then, since last check, we've done a ton of great things to our hit points, getting tough and a better constitution modifier, not to mention picking up one more healing light die per long rest. We've also grabbed massive bumps to our armor class thanks to Shield of Faith and the Shield Spell, not to mention a couple more spell slots per long rest with that single level of sorcerer that we could use for things like shield and absorb elements, among others. Finally, sure, I'll assume that we've got access to Favored by the Gods when that fireball comes our way. Please don't use this feature on a fireball <laughs> unless it's like the difference between life and death. Taking a little bit more damage is usually not as big a deal as saving against somebody trying to mind control you or something, right? Anyway, we would now be sitting at a potential armor class of 27 much better, and a potential total hit point pool of 143. Those are some massive gains. So at this level, the boss fight here was a young blue dragon, and if they just tried to bite and claw us on their turn, and we had access to all of our resources, we would take only four damage in a round, and at that rate, we'd survive for 35 rounds before keeling over. The typical fight was against four hobgoblin captains, and our DTPR there was three, and that gives us an RTD of 45. And against the fireball, we would take 12 damage in a round on average, and at that rate, we would survive for 13 rounds. 
and compared to other tank builds that I've done to date at this level, that's pretty comfortably in the upper half of tier one across the board. Very nice. Now, to be fair, yes, we are spending a lot of resources to get there. This build will definitely be a lot more powerful when you're getting like one fight per short rest and maybe only a couple of fights per long rest too, for that matter, right? Admittedly, that's kind of how we roll at my table, but I appreciate that not all tables are that way. At level 10, we would be a Warlock 5, and that means we get a third invocation. Eldritch Mind is what we should probably take if we don't have Warcaster, so that we can have advantage on our concentration checks. Maintaining that plus two to AC from Shield of Faith, or frankly, whatever else you might be concentrating on instead, like Bless or maybe a great control option, is super important. And yeah, we do get third level Warlock spells here and third level spell slots, which means that Armor of Agathis is potentially giving us 15 temporary hit points and returning the same in damage, but it also means that we could be casting Fear or Hypnotic Pattern or Fly or Counterspell, among other great warlock spell options. Grab Revivify if you need it in your party since it is available to Celestial Warlocks, but yeah, I'm just gonna assume somewhat foolishly that we are using our concentration for Shield of Faith because it makes our numbers look the best, but honestly, you should probably be using Fear or Hypnotic Pattern for your concentration. That's way more likely to do more to keep your party safe than increasing your own armor class by two, right? And that's kind of what's cool about being a warlock and a tank. Still, I like having the option for Shield of Faith, especially since we could use one of our sorcerer spell slots to cast it, right? It's only a level one spell. At level 11, I'd want to go back to fighter here to get extra attack, but I'm admittedly a little bit torn on this. Honestly, Booming Blade would do just about as much damage as attacking twice, since now at character level 11, we would add 2d8 to Booming Blade, and our Chalet lead club attacks are just a d8 plus three. I mean, yeah, actually in that case, Booming Blade does slightly more damage on average. Plus we have advantage on the attack from our familiar potentially, but we wouldn't on the second attack with extra attack, right? Plus, Booming Blade has the added benefit of encouraging our enemies to stay put, like we've talked about. That said, I hate being like a tank and only being able to put a soft taunt on one enemy per turn. It just feels kind of inadequate. If you're happy with what Booming Blade is doing for you, go ahead and just stick with Warlock. If you feel a lot better about potentially marking two targets per turn, or at least would like to have the option to do so, go ahead and take Fighter here, and in fact, Sure, you should seriously consider getting here a lot sooner in this case. I've been working with the never have more levels in any class than you do in Warlock rule, but getting Fighter 5 sooner is worth considering if you really want to be able to mark two targets per turn, right? At level 12, we'd be a Warlock 6, and that means as a Celestial Warlock, we get the Radiant Soul feature. It doesn't do a ton for us. We get resistance to Radiant damage, which is nice, but Radiant isn't a very common damage type for enemies to be dealing in D&D 5e. It also, though, lets us do extra damage equal to our Charisma modifier when we do Fire or Radiant spell damage. Hmm... There's got to be a high damage Celestial Warlock build in there, right? Maybe a, like a Firebolter for sustained DPR? But we need more ways to bump cantrip damage. And the only other ones I can think of are intelligence-based casters. Hmm. Draconic Soul Sorcerer? But they don't get a bump to damage until level 6, so... So now we're like a level 12 character by the time both of those things kick in. Anyway, sorry. 
Um, yes, not an amazing feature for a tank, but it's better than no feature, so we'll take it. At level 13, there is another ability score increase or feat at Fighter 6, so if we went Fighter 5, let's go 6 so we can grab that and then cap our constitution at 20 and be as beefy a warlock as we can possibly be. For our level 13 damage report, since last check, the best things we've gotten are not going to be showing up on the spreadsheet. Extra attack for more taunts, nice control spell options, better concentration checks, etc. We do have a bigger potential hit point pool though, thanks to a higher constitution score, third level spell slots to cast Armor of Agathus with, and a couple more healing light dice to heal ourselves with, or others of course. Right now, if we're using all of our resources selfishly, we would have a potential total hit point pool of 216 for the enemy to have to burn through. Beefcake lock. Alright, the boss fight here at this level was an adult white dragon, and if they just clawed and bit at us on their turn, on average they would do 7 damage per round to us, and at that rate we'd survive for 33 rounds. The typical fight was 5 helmed horrors, and the DTPR against them was 4, and the rounds to die was 58, and against a level 7 DC 16 fireball, we would take 15 damage per round on average and survive at that rate for 15 rounds. And yeah, that again keeps us kind of in the top half of tier 1 across the board here. When you've got access to your resources on this character, you are one tough nut to crack. Alright. At level 14, I would really love to get to Fighter 7 on this character if we've gone this far. The Cavalier feature at Fighter 7, Warding Maneuver, is a pretty great way to protect your allies from damage once in a while, and that's kind of our main job on this character, right? However, I only take my builds to level 17, and I also really want to get more Warlock levels for more self-healing dice and better spells, including better scaling on Armor of Agathus, but I also really love the Celestial Warlock level 10 feature, and that was just a little more important to me on this build. Definitely consider going Fighter 7 at some point, especially like I say if you've gone this far in the class, but for us, we're going back to Warlock here and would thus be a Warlock 7. That means we get a fourth invocation. What should we take? It kind of gives me both like great pleasure and great pain to just say PYF. Great pain because Nothing here is going to significantly increase our survivability. Great pleasure because it really frees us up to have fun, take some of those cool utility things that I often have to pass up in a build. Farscribe is fun and only available to Tomlocks. Someone can write their name in your book and then you can cast the sending spell to them by simply writing a message in the book to them. Fiendish Vigor can be a good way to get some more temporary hit points if we're out of spell slots for Armor of Agathis or we want to save those spell slots for something else. Ghostly Gaze lets you see through solid objects. Gift of the Depths lets you breathe underwater. Lots of fun and useful stuff. Knock yourself out. We also get 4th level spells here, and you know, Banishment is a great single target control spell, Dimension Door is a huge teleport for you and a friend, potentially, but yeah, there's nothing here that I'd necessarily take to increase our survivability, so again, pick your favorite. Do whatever you think makes you not just the best tank, but the best warlock. At level 15, we would be a warlock 8, and that means we get another ability score increase or feat, and I think I'm going to take Fae Touched here. You might have forgotten, but we've been sitting at a 17 charisma since level 1. How have you been able to sleep at night? 
I know I certainly wouldn't be. But yes, at this point, I want to bump it to 18 finally. Or again, if it were me playing this character in game, I'd probably do this the first chance I got. I think that the best way to get to 18 is, yeah, taking Fey Touched. It's just so good. It lets you cast Misty Step once per day without spending a spell slot, really adding to our teleportation capabilities, and also lets us learn another first level spell of either the Enchantment or Divination spell schools, meaning we could take Silvery Barbs or Bless if we didn't at Sorcerer 1, but the one that's most compelling to me is Compelled Duel. <laughs> Compelled Duel is a great way to land a second or even third taunt if we have extra attack, right? Once in a while. It only takes a bonus action to cast and can target a creature within 30 feet, forcing them to make a wisdom save, and if they fail, yes, they have disadvantage on attacks against anyone but you for one minute and they can't move more than 30 feet away from you, barring another wisdom save. This is a really great spell for a tank. And yeah, being able to have it is a great argument for going Fey Touched much earlier in the build, right? The big bummer with the spell is that it ends if you do any number of things. Attack or cast a spell on another creature, move yourself more than 30 feet away from them, or if one of your allies attacks the target that you've got compelled. But hey, we get to cast it for free once per day, and then can use our spell slots for it after that. Situationally, it's really useful for what you are trying to accomplish as the party's tank, and I love that we get it, Misty Step, plus an 18 Charisma, all with one feat. It is perfect. At level 16, we would be a Warlock 9, and that means we get a fifth invocation, and here, I think we've got to go with Gift of the Protectors. It's only available to Tome Locks. It's perfect for a protection-focused tank like us. It tells us that proficiency bonus number of creatures can write their name in your Book of Shadows, including yourself. But now, when that creature would drop to zero hit points, they instead magically drop to one hit point. Now, sure, sometimes this just means that the monster with multi-attack just hits them a second time, and then they just go back to zero anyway. But even then, we're absorbing damage that would have potentially gone to another ally or ourselves, and sometimes it's going to give that character potentially a chance to get away, receive a bigger heal, at the very least, take their action and do some additional damage before they go down again, right? Now, unfortunately with this invocation, only one person with their name in the book can benefit from it per day. I kind of wish it was like, Everyone with their name can benefit once per day, but I guess wizards felt like that would be a little too powerful for a ninth level feature. I don't know. Anyway, we also get fifth level spells here at this level, and I'm probably gonna grab Greater Restoration. It's available to Celestial Warlocks, since it cures so many things, and having it available is always handy. But beyond that, I will again say PYF. Synaptic Static is wonderful. Hold Monster is maybe even better. Grab what you like best. And then finally, for us, at level 17, we would be a Warlock 10, and we get the Celestial Resilience feature. And this tells us that once per short or long rest, we can gain temporary hit points equal to our Warlock level plus our Charisma modifier. Now, that's only 14 at the moment, which is less than if we had cast Armor of Agathis on ourselves with one of our fifth level spell slots. That would be 25, right? But Celestial Radiance gives those temporary hit points to up to five additional creatures. And yeah, it's once per short rest. That's pretty fantastic for helping to keep 
all of our party safe, which is again kind of the whole point of this character. Now, when I crunch numbers, I'm still going to assume that we've got temporary hit points from Armor of Agathus up. But in-game, I imagine you'd probably just use this at the end of every short rest, and then in the middle of combat, potentially like use Action Surge to cast Armor of Agathus once those temporary hit points ran out, and then still make a Booming Blade attack to land your taunt, or take the attack action to try and land that mark on a couple of enemies, etc. All right, for our final damage report, we've gained a lot of utility, support, and even potentially damage features since our last check, but the only way we've really added to our own survivability is by simply gaining levels and getting more hit points and higher spell slots for Armor of Agathus. Nothing wrong with that. Gaining variety in what you can do for your party is always a good thing, even if it doesn't show up on the spreadsheets as much. But at this point, if we include all of our self-healing and temporary hit points, we would have a total potential hit point pool of 288 that the enemy would need to burn through to take us down. And so, against our boss here, which was an adult red dragon, the DTPR was 12, and at that rate we'd survive for 24 rounds. A typical fight was against five earth elementals, and if they all just attacked us for an entire round, and we had shield available and everything else that we needed, we would take nine damage per round on average, and the RTD there would be 32. And then finally, against a level nine DC 17 meteor swarm, on average we would take 51 damage, yikes, and survive for six rounds. Nobody really does that well against Meteor Swarm except for those with evasion. Which, yes, kind of just keeps us comfortably in the middle of tier one compared to other builds at this level, and that's with 10 levels of Warlock. Not bad. So, let's break it down in the final thoughts. The tier score for this character, if you take the rounds to die for each of the hypothetical encounters at each of the damage reports and just average them into one big number, we would end up with a 24. And that puts us, not surprisingly, right in the middle of tier one. And I'm not gonna lie, that was a huge surprise to me. We get a lot more mileage out of our self-healing and other defensive spells than I originally thought we were going to get when I first started building this character. Now. Does that mean that they are one of the best tanks that I've ever made? That all depends, right? They're probably not as good at drawing enemy fire as others that I've done, like the Bear Totem Barbarian tank, I don't know how many cards I've done yet this week, or better yet, the mounted tank from the two build Mountain Blade video from a while back. This tank lock also doesn't have quite the level of durability of like the super crazy divine protector cleric tank, surely I'm out of cards by now, or even the clockwork soul sorcerer tank, but survivability is still superb on this tank lock. They're also probably a little more resource intensive than a lot of my other tank builds. When you can use the gift of the Raven Queen and have your reaction and spell shield available, plus yourself heals, etc., then yeah, you're super durable. Outside of those times though, much less so. Of course, to be fair, you could say the same thing about, I think, the majority of my tank builds. And in the end, that's kind of where I end up with my thoughts on this one. It's tempting to argue that they're not going to be quite as durable as I pretend because I assume they have all these resources. But the truth is, 
with a potential 27 armor class, and that's without any magic items, mind you. And all of those potential hit points and self-heals, this character is probably going to be way more durable than you actually need them to be. I, I say this a lot, but yeah, nobody goes into a fight and just manages to draw all enemy fire for the entire combat encounter, right? And that's actually great news for us, because it means that we can potentially sacrifice some of those durability options I took to use them for other things like control spells, more damage, better utility, etc., and still be a great tanky protector for our team, while also being a character who is primarily a warlock. And not even a Hexblade Warlock. And I love the capability that this character gives us to do just that. So, that's the build for the week. I hope you guys enjoyed it. I had a blast making it. I love you guys. You're the best. Thanks so much for all that you do for me, for the channel. I so appreciate it. I hope you have a really fantastic day and a great week. And that you stay safe and that you be good and kind. And that I see you again really soon. But until then, take care. Paul is making me nervous Paul is making me scared Walking to this room and swaggers Like he's God's own messenger Change the name of my brother Changing things that he said he says that he speaks to him But he never even knew the man I'd give my life for him like water through my hands You'd give him any ending But if he's all you say Would he fly from heaven to this world again? To this world again Ah, fly from heaven you know what? That was a good Easter song. And I know that it's not really Easter anymore, but when I'm recording this, it was barely just Easter. Anyway, Toad the West Sprocket, one of my favorites all time. Probably my favorite concert of all time was when they were on tour for their Dulcinea album. They opened with that song, actually, and just, ooh, full body chills when that guitar comes in right after that first verse. Oh, it's so good. All right. Do we like the blue? Yeah. I like the blue. I was thinking about going green to match the D4 shirt, but I feel like it kind of looked a little washed out. But don't even say that. Okay, let's make sure we're focused. Not on, oh, ooh. Not on Dalinar, though he is awesome. Not on Shepard, though also amazing. Oh, chair is a squeaky one today. <laughs> oh, I'm out of water. Mike, cut it out. Monsters of the multiverse, right there. A use of their, um, a use of their, what's it called? As for the second level spells that we weren't, <laughs> I just got back from the dentist. That water is cold and that really hurts my teeth. As I take another drink, it was the worst dental experience I've had in years, by the way, holy cow. The little water pick thing that they were using to clean my teeth was like a fire hose. I felt like I was being waterboarded the whole time. I was sweating bullets. Ugh, that was the worst. Uh-uh. It's not that much. It's 10.5.
<sighs> recalculate numbers. Oh, wait, no recalculate numbers. I was right. I love that. <laughs>